So several years ago, I uh, had a friend uh, from the church who needed help moving. And I said to him, yeah, I'll be glad to help you move, no big deal. And I had another friend who said to me, uh, or I said to him, hey, can you, can you give me a hand? You know, one of our friends needs help moving. He's like, or I, th- I thought that he said to me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to help you move. And so the day came for moving. This was a Saturday. And I was helping him move, and my other friend never showed up. And I thought, oh, maybe he'll, maybe he'll eventually come. Well, never showed up again. And then by the end of the day, he never showed up. And I was, I was getting a little bit, getting a little righteously indignated and a little upset. And so I saw him the next day, and I pulled him aside. And I said, where were you, man? You know, I, I thought that you know, we were going to do this together, and he needed our help, and we were going to come together. And he, he's one of the most humble guys that I know. And he just said, well, you know, I, I never told him that I was going to help him move. And besides, I spent the entire day dealing with bed bugs. I had to throw thousands of dollars worth of mattresses away because our house was infested with bed bugs. And I, like, slunk down into my chair. And I felt as big as a bed bug. My name's Dave. I have the privilege to serve on staff here, and if you were not with us last week, we began this series on Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'll just give you a one-slide summary of what we talked about last week. Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, that mostly he's dealing with the Gentiles or the, the pagans, if you will, those who are engaged in idolatry. Last week, we called this American idolatry. This is Roman idolatry. He uses the word they or them 21 times to say these are the symptoms of idolatry. You know, they are sexually impure, they're greedy, they're, they're full of gossip and slander and God-hating and insolent, arrogant, boastful, disobedient. And even if you approve of these forms of idolatry, that you are guilty. And when Paul finishes chapter 1, it's almost like he can hear a group of people off to the side saying, get them, Paul. Get all those idolaters. Let them have it. And Paul, perhaps sensing this, turns to them and says, excuse me. And instead of saying they, he says, you, don't be so fast. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so in this devotional that that we've been going through with our growth group called Romans Explained. I love the picture that he paints. There's a uh, a courtroom, and the jury is made up of these self-righteous Jews. Paul has the Gentiles on the stand, and he's pointing out forms of idolatry, and the self-righteous Jews are saying, get them, Paul, get them, Paul. And now he turns to them and says, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Right? So, that story that I opened the sermon up with my friend who didn't show up, what, what, I, what I should have done is when I got a little bit angry that he didn't show up, I should have asked myself this question, have I ever done that? 
Have I ever not shown up or given him the benefit of the doubt that something came up, which was actually a very good excuse that he didn't show up? You know, Paul takes his cues from Jesus here. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? We talked about this for several weeks. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. So the Apostles' Creed states that Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead, and they will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what the standard will be when he judges us? It's the same standard that I use when I judge you. It's the same standard that you use when you judge other people. And here's the thing. (laughs) My standard is typically a lot higher for you than it is for me. I'm a lot quicker to show myself grace than to show you grace. The standard for myself is oftentimes lower than I care to admit. So about a week ago, my wife was serving for the If Gathering. She was in a little bit of a hustle because she had to come over here and serve people. And so she brushed her hair, and she put the, the leftover hair into the sink. Can, can, I, can, can anyone? And, and I looked at the hair in the sink, and I thought to myself, Praise God that my wife has such beautiful hair. <laughs> Praise God that we have the financial means to buy really good shampoo that she can shampoo her hair and brush her. No, I didn't think that at all. I wish I did. <laughs> Instead, I thought to myself, ah. And I quoted Second Hesitations chapter 5, verse 42, which says, If a man's wife loses her hair and puts it in a sink, she is subject to judgment. I just made up that verse, but that's basically what I thought, and I got all self-righteous, indignation started going up in me. Now, I was smart enough to not say anything that evening until the next day when I, like, snuck it in there. Like, I wasn't, like, how, like, I snuck it in there in a conversation. I forget what we were talking about. And she could have, when I brought it up, very easily said to me, yeah, well, how about, how about the times where I go through the door and I got a baby in one hand and groceries in the other and I trip over all your dirty, smelly, nasty shoes and I got to put your shoes on. And then all the kids, Little League spikes, I'm always tripping. I'm always having to pick up. She could have said that, but she did very gently because she's more humble than I am. She did remind me, you know, there are times where I have to pick up your stuff and put it back. Right? I should have in that moment when I saw the hair in the sink, because, I mean, it took me a long time to clean it up. It took me an entire 15 seconds to clean it up. Right? I should have asked myself this question. Have I ever left something out for others to pick up? Because if I did in that moment, it would have perhaps disarmed my self-righteousness and not started to point the finger at her. So this is what Paul's saying. You, you self-righteous Jews who think that you got it all together, you got to be careful. We know, that, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, right? God sees everything perfectly. I see a distorted picture of reality, right? When I look at your life, I see a distorted picture. I don't see the whole story. I don't see everything that you've gone through and the way that you've grown up and everything that's going on. God sees you perfectly. He sees it completely as it is. He sees it in HD. He sees it with truth. And so Paul says, so when you, again, pointing to the jury box, when you, a mere man, a mere woman, a mere teenager, when you pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? 
You think you're escaping God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, which means open-mindedness, patience, compassion, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Most of us would say it's not God's scowl that draws me to him. It's his smile. It's his kindness. It's his goodness. And one of the reasons that God has not judged you and me and the people who are on the stand is because he's patient, not wanting anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. You see this theme all throughout the scripture. Matthew chapter 18, there's that parable that Jesus talks about when he says, all right, we got this guy who meets with the king because the king's going to settle all the accounts. And this man goes before the king owing millions of dollars. And the king says, throw him into prison until he can pay it back. And this guy knows I can't pay it back. The debt is too large. And he gets down on his knees and says, have mercy on me. And the king says, I'll pay your debt in full. You can go be free. And you can see all this, this man's, you know, his children and his wife are standing. And they're like, we've escaped it. And then as the parable goes on, this man who has just been forgiven much runs into another man who owes him just a few dollars in contemporary terms. But instead of extending the same kind of forgiveness, he grabs this man by the neck and says, you got to pay it all back. Be thrown into prison. Well, there's a bunch of people who are overhearing this and seeing this. So they go back to the king and they say, hey, that guy that you just left off, let off the hook for millions of dollars, he just threw someone in prison for only owing him a few dollars. He says, well, bring him back to me. So he comes before the king and the king says to him, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. How dare you don't extend forgiveness for a man who only owed you a little bit. So be thrown into prison until you pay back every last penny. I mean, if you're a Christian, you've experienced the riches of God's kindness, that the debt that we owe him has been paid. How dare we don't show kindness to others? Paul says in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart or your failure to turn from your sin, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It's like every time we don't repent, it's like we're dropping deposits in God's bank of wrath. Storing up for yourself wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's terrifying. And now Paul's going to kind of leave, he's going to kind of pour it on a little bit more here, right? Because he's going against these self-righteous people in the jury box. They're like, get him, Paul, get him, Paul, get him, Paul. So Paul's like, all right, I want, you to, I want you to internalize this. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Whew. That. That's terrifying. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, that's scary because I'm not always very good. Even when I do good things, there's the selfish motivations sometimes that are behind it. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath 
and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You say, why first for the Jew, then for the Gentile? Because Paul's saying, look, you in the in the jury box who are pointing your finger, you have the Old Testament scriptures. You have the law of Moses. You have the prophets. You've been given the glory and the greatness of God, and yet you're throwing it back at people. He says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a pagan worshiper or a really moral person who follows the Mosaic law, God doesn't show favoritism. You're all guilty. And now he pours it on a little bit more. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. That should terrify us. Because if I'm declared righteous due to my obedience to the law, I'm in trouble. I mean, if I could fast forward just for a moment to Romans chapter 3, Paul says, no one is righteous, not even one. So you ask the question, well, why would Paul talk so much about works here? Why would he talk about righteousness because you've obeyed the law? Here's how Tim Keller explains this in his book called Romans 1 through 7 for you. He says, the only path to righteousness through the law is to obey it. In other words, if you want to be righteous through following the law, the only way you can attain righteousness is by following it perfectly. And he says, and are you really going to claim that you always obey all God's laws in all ways? Are you really going to claim that you're always perfect? I mean, we say all the time, but I'm not perfect or anything. But, right, what we really mean by that is, yeah, I make a few mistakes, but I really am kind of perfect. And if you saw the world the way I saw it and did the things I did, this world would be a better place. So now that he's got everybody in the room, the Jews, the Gentiles, the idolaters, the Jews who are really righteous and good and moral. People might be asking themselves the question, okay, well, what about the Gentiles? But they don't have the Old Testament scriptures. They don't have the law of Moses as described in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Did they know any better? And Paul says, well, let me address that. Indeed, when the Gentiles or the non-Jews who do not have the law do nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the righteous requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So even if you're in this room, or you're part of the original audience of Romans, and you're like, I don't understand the Bible. I've never read the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures of Israel. I don't know what God expects of me. Paul says, well, no, 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 because actually you got the law written on your heart. You have this thing called a conscience, right, that whenever you do evil, the conscience speaks to you and you experience guilt, or you have a conscience that defends you 
to the point where you rationalize things even though you know deep down inside you were wrong. So now, again, he puts everybody into the same boat. Self-righteous Jews, idolaters from Rome, you're all in the same boat, and there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back, and this day will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Because, see, some of you thought to yourself, well, i got some secrets that nobody really knows about. Maybe God doesn't even know about it. Well, i got news. God knows everything, and chances are that your spouse and your kids know about your secrets as well. And there's going to come a day when Jesus returns, and all of your secrets and all of your works are going to be laid bare. And here's the news. There is no one righteous. Not even one. No one who does good. Not even one. So, quick summary, Romans 1 through 2. Here's how we know this. Here's how we know we're unrighteous. Here's how we know that we're sinful. Here's how we know we deserve the penalty of God's wrath placed upon us. Because creation tells us in chapter 1, he says, no man is without excuse. You look at the glory of creation, his invisible qualities, his attributes are declared through creation. Number two, the commandments. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what if you're blind? What if you can't see God's beautiful creation? What if you're in the middle of a desert and you don't have access to the Scriptures? How do you know what's wrong? Paul says, well, you're still guilty because you have the law written on your heart through your conscience. So, I hope right now, everyone in this room and all of you watching online, I hope you feel a little bit terrified. I hope you feel a little guilty. I hope you feel the the seriousness of God's wrath towards idolatry and in chapter 2, self-righteousness. So here's the big question. Is there any hope? We got any hope here? Anything good or we just, well, that's it. Go home and wallow in your sin, and let's just kind of celebrate our sin. Well, I got good news for you. There is hope. Before we go to this next verse, okay, I want to tell you about this amazing hope, and I'm going to summarize it in one word. You ready for this? This is your hope. This is the end of chapter 2. Your hope is in the word circumcision. Now, if you're a male in the room, you're like, oh, I think I'm okay because when I was two days old and my my baby boys, you know, they went out to the nurse, they came back, they were good. And the women are like, well, I guess there's no hope for me. You know, see you later. There's no hope. So Paul spends several verses at the end of chapter 2 talking about circumcision. And let me see if I can explain to you the power behind this. Okay, so let's go all the way back to Genesis where God chooses Abraham to be the leader of this nation that would later on become Israel. Right? And in those days, in the ancient world, they didn't simply sign pledges or sign documents because that would be too easy. They were visual learners like myself. They, they did things like they would take buckets of sand and they would dump it on themselves to demonstrate, if I break the covenant, I'm going to turn to dust just like this. Right? So they would demonstrate what would happen to you if you broke the law or broke the covenant. Another example, they would take an animal, cut it in half, And then you would walk through the animal to demonstrate, if I'm a covenant breaker, I deserve to have happened to me what has just happened to this animal. 
So let me explain circumcision. Don't think too hard about this. But when you get circumcised, right, it's that sensitive, tender, sensitive, intimate part of you that gets cut off to demonstrate that if you're a lawbreaker or a covenant breaker, that you deserve to get cut off. That became the Hebrews' way of thinking for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was a big deal to them. We are Jews. We follow the law of Moses as described in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and our boys get circumcised because that's a big deal. That's a sign of the covenant. So, 164 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, the leader of the Greeks, comes in and takes over the land of Palestine, and he tells all of the Jews, I'm outlawing the law of Moses, and I'm outlawing circumcision. You can't get your boys circumcised anymore. And the Jews say, oh yeah, if you're not going to allow us to do that, you can kill us, because we would rather die than not circumcise our boys. That's how big a deal circumcision was. And here's what Paul says. This is the hope. This is the good news. You need to be circumcised if you want to avoid the judgment of God. And here's how he describes it. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Good news for all the ladies in the room, right? Circumcision is done by the heart, not physically by the written code, because Jesus already already got physically circumcised. Let me explain to you what I mean. When he carried up his cross to Golgotha, they took him outside of the city gate, away from the holy temple, away from the holy people, away from his disciples. He was excluded, he was cut, and he was cut off so that you could be grafted in. Jesus was excluded so that you could be included. Jesus was cut and cut off so that you could be brought into the family of God. Isn't that good news? So the way that you get in and the way that you get away from the wrath of God is to be circumcised by the Holy Spirit. That's where your hope is, not by following the law, Paul says. So here's the question I want to leave you with, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this big question. What are the sins you're tempted to excuse in yourself while condemning them in others? What are the sins that you're tempted to say, uh, I'll show myself grace, but you, right? You might say, well, adultery, right? I've never committed adultery. And Jesus said, well, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You might say, well, what about all those murderers and all those bad people? And Jesus says, if you hold hatred in your heart, then you've committed murder. We need to ask ourselves the question, when you get angry or when you're tagged, have I ever done that? Have I, am I so quick to judge that person? Have I, have I ever committed that? Have I ever hurt that person? And here's the answer. Yes, you have, and God was kind to me. So cut out your anger because Jesus was cut out for you. You say, what about righteous anger? You can't handle righteous anger because you're not righteous enough. There's only one person who can handle righteous anger, and that's the God of the universe who's perfect and sees things 
perfectly. You can't handle righteous anger. So you need to pause when you get angry and when you're filled with judgmentalism and say, have I ever done that? And the answer is yes. I'm going to process my own sin and my own anger before I start saying, get him, Paul. Now, this is not a message about don't ever judge somebody. I mean, Jesus said, you, you, got to take, you got this plank in your eye, right? I mean, we walk around with a plank in our eye, right, thinking, I'm just going to go start pointing my finger, and I'm going to go up to Levi here, and I'm going to take the, the speck out of his eye, but I, but I got a plank that's getting in the way. I can't even see the speck. I, so Jesus says, no, you got to address the plank in your eye. You got to address your own sin and your own judgmentalism. You put it aside, you work through it, and then, because I love him, I'm going to help him see the speck in his own eye. I have a, I have a friend who, she's in full-time ministry, and we were sitting around a table one day, there were several people there, and we were just having a side conversation, and I discovered that she has a son who um, was engaged in several same-sex relationships, and he had, you know, walked away from the church, and uh, we had a good conversation. And this past week, I emailed her to ask her specifically, what does kindness look like when you disagree with somebody? What does kindness look like when you believe somebody's engaged in something that you know is not good for them? And I got to share with you what she wrote to me. She said, Kindness is making space for honest conversation no matter how hard it is to hear. Slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen. It means I'm willing to listen more than I am to point the finger. It's it's making space for honest conversations. It's asking for forgiveness. It's me repenting for my part of a painful journey. And then she said this, and I, I almost get a little emotional every time I read this. She said, it's waiting at the end of the lane every day for him to return, having encountered the creator and lover of his soul and forever be changed into the likeness of Jesus. It's kindness. It's being willing to engage in conversation. And what she's referencing here is the parable of the prodigal son where you have this man who has squandered his father's wealth on prostitutes and wild living, has shamed his father among the community, has done pretty much the worst thing you can do in that world, and now he's sitting in a pigsty longing for the food that the pigs eat. And as he's sitting there, Jesus, as he tells this parable, says, and then he came to his senses. And he thought to himself, I'll go back to my father. And maybe my father will allow me to be a slave on his farm. So he gets up out of the pigsty. And this is so awesome. And he ran back, or he walked back to his father. And his father saw him. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with Anger 
Now, the father in this story is God who has every right to be angry towards his son, has every right to see, how dare you come back to me? You just squandered all my inheritance. You just squandered all my wealth. You just brought shame to me and your brother in our household. How dare you come running down that road? You stay in the pigsty. He had every right to do that. He had every right to be righteously angry. But he didn't. When he saw him, he was filled with compassion. And he hiked up his robe and exposed his ankles, which is unfathomable, which is almost reckless in those days. And he came running after his son, and he grabbed him around the neck and gave him a kiss. And I have to believe tears were running down his eyes because his son was dead, and now he's alive. That's Romans 1. That's a boy who took all of his father's inheritance and squandered it on idolatrous living. And now we're introduced to Romans 2. Because you got another brother who's been hanging out in the tent and hears that there's a little party going on out there and that they killed the fattened calf. Are you kidding me? You killed the filet mignon for this boy who just squandered dad's wealth? And he's mad, right? And the dad comes in, right? And the older brother became angry, self-righteous, and he refused to go in. And the father looks at his son, and he says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You've been with me all along. You have the scriptures. You have my love. You have my inheritance. You have all the food, all the the joys in life. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And now he's been found. And I love what Tim Keller says. The self-righteous person welcomes God's wrath on others, but thinks they themselves are entirely exempt. You, you, you. God, get them. Get them. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. The story of Jonah, right? Here's Jonah. He gets a message from God. Go tell the Ninevites about my goodness. And Jonah's like, I ain't going there. That's the last thing I want to do. So he gets on a ship Heading the opposite direction from Nineveh, he thinks he's going to have a good time. And God says, I'll give you a whale of a time. And they put him inside this whale for three days. That's God's goodness, right? Because he's like, I love you so much, I'm not going to allow you to persist in your self-righteousness. Puts him in a whale for three days, spits him up, goes to Nineveh, the most evil city in the world, gives the shortest sermon ever given, and the entire city repents. And he's still mad. Tim Keller says, they see no need for repentance and have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment in order to give them an opportunity to turn to him in humility and for mercy. You know the reason God has not poured out his wrath? It's because he's patient. He's tolerant. And he's long-suffering. And he longs for everyone to come to repentance. And, you know, if Jesus could ever ask himself this question, not that he ever did, but if he would say to himself, Jesus, have I ever done that? You know what he would say? 
No. But I'll be kind anyway. I've, ne- I've actually never done. I mean, Peter, who was one of Jesus' best friends, said, in him there is no sin. No sin. Never got self-righteous, though he's the only one who had a right to do it. Never sinned, never fell into idolatry and said, I'll be kind towards you anyway. So you be kind as well. You be kind as well. There's a time and a place to sit down with people to have difficult conversations when they're falling away or if they've hurt you. But not before you've wrestled your own sin first. Because self-righteousness is never, ever okay. Anger, I get it, we get angry, something happens to us, we see the hair in the sink. Anger, consumed by anger, pointing the finger is the opposite of what Christ has done for you. He was cut off that you might be grafted in. He was excluded that you might be included. And when Jesus comes back in every deposit that you've made in his bank of wrath, it's going to get poured out. And for those of us whose hearts have been circumcised, who have the Spirit of God on Jesus at the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that, my friends, should make us repent of our self-righteousness. We're going to celebrate communion right now. This is a way to celebrate God's love for us. If you have a, a cup in your seat back in front of you, if you want to grab this, Everybody should have one in the seat in front of them. And this is what we're celebrating today, that the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating the prospects of the cross, he said, Father, is there any way that this cup could pass for me? What he was saying is, the cup of judgment is going to be terrorizing. It's going to be agonizing. It's going to be awful to... Drink the cup of God's wrath. So is there any way this can be passed for me? And yet in that moment, he was able to say, not my will, but your will be done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I just want you to know that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to point fingers but to save the world through him. So the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth instructions on how to celebrate communion. And he said this, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you take the top off of the bread and you hold it in your hands, we're doing this in remembrance of him. The body of Christ broken for you. Take a moment and give thanks to the Lord silently.
go ahead and peel the, the top of your drink. This cup symbolized, again, the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath that Jesus drank. Every bit of it, every drop that you put in the bank of God's wrath was poured out on him and was paid in full. So in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant that would be sealed the next day as Jesus was cut and cut off. That's the new covenant that would be sealed in his blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ shed for you. If you just took communion, the Apostle Paul says, here's what you did. That whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let me pray for you. Um, and then we'll close this service with a song that talks about these glorious, amazing truths. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for paying the price. And we ask for forgiveness and we repent from any self-righteous behavior, from any anger that we might have towards somebody else. Would you give us the strength this week when we get angry to pause and say, have I ever done that? God, thank you that you were the only one in human history that never did do that. And yet you paid the price anyway. And so we ask for forgiveness for our hard hearts, our self-righteousness, our condemning attitudes. May we be people who display extraordinary kindness because we know that it is your kindness that has led us to repentance and that will ultimately lead those around us to repentance. Thank you that some of us in the room, at some point in our lives, we're sitting in a pigsty and you came running after us with a reckless abandon. Thank you that some of us in the room we're self-righteous and just wanted everybody else to be condemned. But you ran after us as well, Lord, because you come after the idolaters. You come after the Pharisees. You come after the bad people and the good people. And you say, y'all are all in the same boat because no one is righteous. But I'll love you anyway. And I'll pursue you anyway. We praise you for that amazing truth, the amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and a wretch like y'all. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in the mighty, awesome name of the God of the universe, who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and sing this great truth. <laughs>